All right, Dan. Would you rather someone cry in your debriefing or stand up and yell at you in your debriefing? I'd much rather have someone stand up and yell at me. Um, I uh, uh, Crying is really difficult for me because I tend to cry myself. And so um, even though even though I think dealing with crying in general is more straightforward, you know, just expressing empathy and um, understanding. Um, I, I think it's emotionally more difficult than having someone yell at me. So it'd be okay if I yelled at you in this podcast um, and I shouldn't cry during the podcast. <laughs> I always enjoy you yelling at me, Janice. <laughs> All right, your turn. Uh, would you rather uh, debrief a group of surgeons or a room full of pharmacists? Ooh. What kind of surgeons? The rest. <laughs> I think I would rather debrief a room full of pharmacists. Because I'm constantly trying to keep up to date with pharmaceuticals. Like it, the drugs are always changing. And I know I would learn something that I can apply to many other simulations. It's tempting. This one's a hard one, though, because I think in, in my mind, debriefing surgeons, it's very easy for me to give deference. And it's almost like required when I'm. I feel like I'm debriefing surgeons and it's easier for me to hold the basic assumption. So I get a lot more curious. Not that I can't do that with pharmacists, but I'd much rather pharmacists for the, you know, for my own personal learning. It's a selfish choice. All right. Would you rather a learner potentially damage a mannequin during the case or make a medical error during the case? I should say damage the mannequin. Right. Uh, so I don't believe there's any such thing as damaging a mannequin. <laughs> so, you know, I'm an engineer and I love to tinker. And so I've damaged the mannequin on purpose so that I could just fix it. <laughs> um, so I have this unrealistic belief that no matter what anyone does to a mannequin, there's always a way to fix it. Whereas if someone makes a medical error and they're humiliated or devastated, that has that can be really difficult to fix. That can be permanently damaging to them or to their attitudes about simulation. Um, you know, I encourage people to stab the mannequin with a needle or, um, you know, to cut it or do invasive things because I can always glue it back together. Hmm. That is true about you. Okay, I've got one for you. Would you rather have a scenario fail or have a debriefing fail? Definitely scenario fail. Definitely scenario fail. There are so many ways to recover that in debriefing. If you have a debriefing fail, th that is very difficult to recover. Would you rather do an icebreaker or just start the podcast? I think I would rather just start <laughs> the podcast. 
Welcome to DJ Simulationista's Sup. This is Dan Raymer. And Janice Palaganis. Sup, Dan? Sup, Janice. Hey, Janice, I have some questions I want to ask you. I know you just came back from spending some time in Guatemala, where you took care of patients and did some teaching and even did some simulation. Yeah. And so I, I've had virtually no experience doing simulation in low-resource environments. Uh, I haven't gone on any missions or anything like that. I'm thinking it's a, just a wonderful thing to do, but uh, tell me tell me how you experienced it. Ah, oh, it's great. I mean, just going to Guatemala, period, like I've said this to you, it's not a vacation, it's a vocation. And I just enjoy pretty much doing volunteer work and running courses. There are some things about low resource healthcare that kind of roll into simulation that just make it the only word I could really use to describe it is holistic. And I think when when you are creating simulations for low resource settings, that is probably the big difference is how do you make the cases holistic to that culture and that environment. So I'm guessing that you didn't use mannequins, that you used other modalities to accomplish what you had to accomplish. Could, could you give me some detail on that? Yeah, you know, maybe that's why I love doing simulations there too, because sometimes I do wonder if, because we're such a vendor-driven market, we often rely on what the market has for us, and it often stifles our own creativity. I mean... I remember when I first started doing simulation, there weren't all that. I mean, and granted, there's a lot of great models that are out right now. There weren't that many when I first started and bringing in experts to come in and just go to Home Depot and create their own aneurysms and, you know, different types of things that seem more real than what was available at the time. And I think that now people are kind of just shopping online and not really thinking, oh, we could just go to Home Depot and do it. And in low resource settings, you have to do that. There's just no choice. You don't have the money to do it. And and yes, the, it does hit at the technical realism. You know, you don't have these high technology mannequins. We use dolls, we use fruit, we used um, animal meat. And then most of what we did was standardized patients, or I should say simulated patients and family. Give me an example of something that you simulated, because I'm trying to get a picture of this. And I've seen a couple of your pictures from Guatemala and uh, you know, the nice scenery and the beautiful volcanoes and all that sort of thing. But uh, I, I'm, I'm not picturing your simulations very accurately, I'm sure. Well, the course, the focus of the course that I teach is immersive Spanish for healthcare providers. And so the scenarios that we use were mainly simulated patients because a lot of it was the communication. I would say most of the cases involved family because family is so integral in, in all of the cases there. In terms of developing and choosing which simulations to create, you know, it's really interesting. You have to really look at, at the culture and the different frequencies of what they see. 
in terms of um, clinical diagnoses because they are different place to place. And some that you would expect, some that you wouldn't. For example, we had a congestive heart failure case, which, you know, hardly anybody smokes there. And so the first thing you would think of in the United States is, you know, what's your smoking history? Have you ever smoked? There, it's actually very frequent. um, And it's in older women because of the stoves that they use. And if there's no venting when they're cooking. And so you actually have to ask different questions than what you would ask in the United States. And then also, as we structured the cases, it wasn't just what the clinical management was. There's different processes. There's there's different drugs that they give. There are limitations to the little clinic, the little hospital that we were at. There are things that they couldn't do. And so they wouldn't do the full spectrum that you would get. The other thing is they have, they, the culture very much still relies, I would say like 50-50 on spiritual healers. And so integrating their beliefs with spiritual healing and how they could collaborate what you're doing in that hospital clinic with what they can do with their spiritual healer. So that's pretty interesting in terms of case development and writing. I would think that it that there must be some level of frustration or feeling bad on your part. I mean, when you see situations where you know that there's an effective treatment that they would get if they were in uh, um, United States, and they just don't have that there. You just can't do that treatment in the clinic. I'm just imagining being kind of frustrated, like, do I even bring this up? Because am I telling a bunch of people something that they just they are never going to have access to? Uh, Do you have any feelings like that when you're there? You know, I do when I do volunteer work in the actual clinical setting for the course for the immersive Spanish speaking, they're usually foreigners. So I don't have that much of a problem with the course, but in the clinical setting, absolutely. I would say I have the frustration when it's a lack of supplies or a lack of medicine or funding. That's That's where I see the frustration. A lot of my colleagues, they have frustrations with the cultural beliefs. And I think that's where it can get hairy being a practitioner volunteering in a low resource setting is you can't put your beliefs on top of theirs. So thinking that what we do in the United States is much better than their combination of of what they do and their spiritual healing. Like you just can't dismiss the healers and, um, you know, different strong beliefs in the culture. Guatemala is known to be quite a nice country and friendly and fairly safe. Do you have this desire to go on and do this sort of thing in um, places that are less welcoming? I, you know, I don't. And I can't say I'm a, I'm an expert at low resource simulations. I, I do this once a year in Guatemala. You know, I've done volunteer work in the Philippines as well, or mission trips. And Pam Andreata, she did the, it was either a June or July issue, but there were quite a number of papers that, that focused on low resource simulation. And she did a really nice um, kind of global article on the benefits. I, I don't know exactly if she mentioned the places where she's worked. I know Walter Epic has also written an article in there and then uh, some of our colleagues from Korea as well. Personally, for me, it's it's my connection with 
the country and my experience there that keeps me going back to Guatemala um, and or the Philippines. I would love to do it elsewhere. I mean, uh, Bruce Lister does the AHA, American Heart Association, ACLS, in all sorts of um, settings and countries. Uh, Elaine Sigalette does a lot with helping babies breathe. I think it's wonderful stuff to spread healthcare education to places that don't have ready access to it. And I really admire people who've uh, contributed in that way. I think what you said about having some connection to the to the country or the people or something like that probably is important. It's overwhelming to think of all of the places in the world that are needy of healthcare and you know no one person can contribute to all of them. So I think having some sort of connection or someone you've met or someone you know must be a piece of this um that that kind of lets you volunteer your time and effort and uh, to go somewhere. Is that, is that your sense? Yes. And I think I've had this great conversation with you, actually. I think for me, the one thing that I did learn this time is that the connection you have with your patients, given the culture and given the state of healthcare in that region or in that um, country, when I'm doing volunteer work in Guatemala, it just seems as though I may, I can make an immediate connection with my patients. Like you just have one encounter with them and there is trust and respect and you just have this connection immediately with your patient. You just and and I see it in their eyes and it does something for me that makes me really want to help them. And I think about healthcare in the United States and you know, Jaden was just a patient and I was in with him. And there is this immediate mistrust. Like you go in and you are already assessing the practitioners that either see you or your family member, and there is just mistrust. Like you're trying to see if you can trust them and it takes for me as a practitioner in the United States, it's it always takes even maybe half an hour to weed through the social barriers to get to a point where you feel like you have a connection with the patient and that there is some trust there and that they'll let you, they'll help you help them. It's just interesting. And I don't know what that is, but if we could explore what that is, to me, that is a key for developing interprofessional education in the future if we could just get through how do you how do you quickly weed through the mistrust or how do you set up a conversation within seconds so that there is trust that's awesome you've been there uh six or seven times now haven't you yeah well i really admire you for doing that work and uh it sounds really uh rewarding and uh and sounds a bit fun as well that's great it's great you should come with yeah, me nice. <laughs> if you don't mind scorpions <laughs> yeah that's the scorpions the lack of coffee uh, in guatemala coffee we are and, like in the center of coffee you well, walk through coffee, coffee don't trees don't you have to don't you have to pull the beans off the plants and crush them <laughs> yourself it's the best kind you roast it dry it oh yeah it's great uh, i'm such a snob <laughs> sorry <laughs> All right, Dan, I will pick some coffee beans, dry them, 
roast them and make you Guatemalan coffee here in the States. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) Looking forward to that. Take care. DJ Simulationistas, what's up? Is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.